0: Here we go. Which of the following are some of the signs given to indicate the rapture is near? Wars, rumors of war, arrival of Antichrist, famines, earthquakes, ten-nation confederacy, prophets, use of the mark to be? None of the above. No, none of the above. There are no signs given to indicate the rapture. All these signs are given for What? The second coming of Jesus Christ, not the rapture, okay? And so there are absolutely no signs that, are, that need to be fulfilled in any way, shape, or form before the rapture takes place. Now, these things have to happen before his second coming to the earth. But let's talk about that. Let's get into the next event in history, which is the second coming, but you know, the coming of Christ, so let me put it that way. But let's back up. Let's make sure that we're all on the same page. That we are, started last week saying that when we approach the study of and times. We need to have several facts in mind. One fact, we said, is God knows all that will happen. We believe that. We understand that. God has chosen to reveal a lot of the things that will happen. Okay? He's given us a lot of information. There's a lot of but the Bible was given for and about prophecy. Number three. We know that what the future holds is only known to us as far as God has chosen to reveal it. There are a lot of informations and a lot of details that we want to know about the future, but God hasn't chosen to reveal it. And some of these passages talk about how certain things like what heaven is all about, what it's like, what happens in there other than what is revealed in scripture. Even he said that the person who had passed away and gone to heaven and come back again, that he wasn't allowed to speak certain things. Deuteronomy we often quote this verse, secret things belong to the Lord. But that is a passage that is dealing with prophecy in end times, that God has chosen not to reveal everything. God has set up, or did set up, certain criteria by which we could tell in the Old Testament, New Testament, who was legitimately telling the truth. And so we looked at a lot of those details. In fact, if somebody were alive and today and saying, I have prophecy, they would have to fulfill that if the gift of prophecy were still functioning today. Number five, we are expected to study the doctrine of eschatology. We pointed out that we are commanded to study all scripture, and since a lot of the Bible deals with prophecy, we're commanded to study it. But also, we find in Hebrews chapter 6, and we looked at this at length last week, that the doctrine of future events is called one of the foundational doctrines, which means all believers dealing with uh, those who are born again, one of the early doctrines that they should be understanding is future events, which means you who are older in the Lord should understand it as well. We are a Able to study future events, though sometimes it gets a little bit confusing and hard, and sometimes when we look at the book of Revelations, it takes us a little bit more brain power and thought than what we anticipate. We are expected to understand. In fact, in Daniel's day, he was told to seal it up, that certain things were not going to be understandable until later on. Now, in the book of Revelation, he says, Keep the sayings, seal not up the sayings, for the time is at hand. We are able to understand more of the prophetic pattern that God has established more of the chronology than any other time in history. And so we're supposed to be able to study it and make sure. Now, we ended up last week talking about this. What makes it so hard to study end time prophecy at times? We made several observations. There's false teachers giving misinformation that started in the very beginning of the New Testament era, still continues today. We pointed out that that in the Bible, there were snippets given. There was tidbits given of prophecy. They weren't all put into one book, one collected uh, chronicle and put in chronicles chronological order, but they came at times a little bit here, a little bit there, which makes it a little bit difficult for us to piece it all together. And one of the areas that makes it hard is we sometimes get so caught up with the minutia or the detail, and prophecy as it is given doesn't always give all the detail, and so we have to be careful in our study in that regard. And as we said, there isn't a chronological order given in the Bible that says, okay, let's start reading in this gospel. Even the book of Revelation is really interesting as you go through the book of Revelation. He gives gives us a little bit uh, of information. And then he, like in, uh, in some of the chapters, he gives us about the, tr- the um, seals, the trumpets, the vials. And after he gives some of the information, then he goes back to the beginning of it and gives more details. So he jumps, gives a big picture, then he gives more details. And so sometimes that's confusing when we don't understand how they wrote in those days. And uh, there's gaps of time in prophecy. <clears throat> we'll see that when we get into the book of Daniel, especially. Uh, what do we do? And this is where we end. Up. what do we do to make sure that what we're doing in studying prophecy that we're being accurate well like in all scripture we study it literally what that means is we understand there's figure of speech we understand that there's symbolism but if the plain sense makes common sense seek no other sense so when he talks about 1260 days three and a half years a time times and a half a time when he gives figures like that well, there's no reason for us to doubt that he's not talking about a three and a half year period when he talks about 42 months months 1260 days time time and a half a time he's talking about a specific period of time that we don't have to allegorize or spiritualize but we're talking three and a half years when he talks about a thousand year kingdom upon the earth we don't have to spiritualize it and say okay it may not be a thousand years it might mean or this." Re- it's a thousand years when he talks about a kingdom on earth, it's a kingdom on earth. We have no reason to say, okay, he's, it's a spiritual picture. Okay, it's When he talks about Satan cast into hell and being bound, we have no reason to make that a spiritual picture like Satan is, like some do. They say Satan is already bound. I can't imagine if Satan is bound right now. How, how you do that theologically when you look at the world around us. So we read it literally. The best commentary on scriptures, the best commentary on prophecy is other prophecy. Compare scriptures with scriptures. Let's do number C. We read it contextually. We have to understand who was writing, to whom they were they were writing, what was the time frame. And so, like in the Old Testament, we have to understand, is he writing to the Jews when he says, be ready for the kingdom, da 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 Who's he talking to? Is that kingdom for... For them, is it for us who the promise is given to? It's very, very important. Letter D. The best theological approach is what we are going to call dispensationalism because it's a biblical term. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this, and uh, this is important in your prophecy. Ephesians chapter 1, jump down to verse 10. In our King James, we read the word that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Jump to chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 where he talks again in verse 2. I'm going to be quoting from a King James. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. And then he goes on, he talks about in verse 3 or verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto man. What he's using here is a term that uh, some of you were with us when we talked about just recently how to study your Bible. We spent a couple weeks on this, but let's just do it very quickly. The word dispensations is a theological term, okay? We saw it in a couple passages already. It shows up in a literal interpretation of the word, okay, or it promotes a literal interpretation of the word. The word means a stewardship. It means a responsibility. It's an assignment given. When it's used in these passages, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, he's talking about eras or periods of time when certain responsibilities were given. For instance, period of time. There was a responsibility given to worship that people had to do what? That's different than what we do today. They had to bring sacrifice, and that was very legitimate. That was appropriate. What did they have for the leadership? for their sacrificial system. What did they call them? Priests. Do we still have priests today that we have to go through? No, you're your own priest. Um, where did you have to go to worship and make sacrifice? To the temple. Okay, and so there was a whole different setup, okay? Was there, There's a certain era of time when certain foods were different than, than what they are now, okay? In, um, in creation time, at the very beginning, what could people eat? Okay, the vegetation, the vegetation, okay, in the beginning of creation, there was the vegetation. When were people allowed to start eating meat, okay, coming off the ark, coming off the ark was okay. now we're able to start eating eating the meats that very clearly uh then in the Old Testament law, what were they allowed to eat? all foods? Only the clean foods. There was unclean foods they couldn't eat. What is available for us to eat today? Everything is open for us today. How, did God change his mind? No. In different periods of time, God had different responsibilities given to people that they were supposed to follow. That that's understanding is the idea of dispensations. There was a dispensation where there was a stewardship given that they had to sacrifice this way, and this is how they showed their worship, they showed their faith. But in each one of those, in all of those different dispensations, they still had to be saved by Faith in God's provision, okay? And so there was still the same thing, but how they expressed their faith was different at different eras of time or different dispensations of time. That's why you and I look and say, okay, God wasn't changing his mind, but God was dealing with the Jews in a dispensation that was different than God deals with us today. That's why they did have legitimate priesthood. We don't have priesthood today. They had um, Passover. We don't have Passover. We have communion, we have baptism. Even our baptism is different than what they did in the Old Testament. John's baptism was different than our baptism because it was a different dispensation. And so we understand that. And according to Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians 3, there's at least three dispensations mentioned in this passage. If you look at chapter 3, okay, for instance, in chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about, he says, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of what? Of the grace of God, which is given to who? What does Paul say? It's given to... Him. It was something that he was he was discussing. It was in his era. And he goes on, he says, How that by revelation he has made known unto me the what? What's a mystery in the Bible? When you read the word mystery, what does that tell you? Something that was hidden in previous times but is now revealed. So he is talking about a dispensation of grace, which was starting with him in his era of time, I should say, it was something that was unknown prior to his era of time, and he is sharing it with the believers. And then he talks about how, in verse 6, if there was something in previous times that is different than what he is giving in the dispensation of grace. Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise. So he is saying that now, at this dispensation of grace, the Jews and the Gentiles are worshiping together. Was that the case prior to the, to the era of Paul's preaching? No, no. The Jews and Gentiles were separated, okay? And so he's talking about something new. We call that the dispensation of grace based on this passage. Then verse 5, he's alluded to other ages, Okay, by just making a comment, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. In other words, there was prior to my time period, Paul is saying, there was a different dispensation. There was a different responsibility. There was a different, and we understand that. The Jews and Gentiles prior to the gospel of grace, the Jews and Gentiles they, they were more distinct. They were separate. They, if a Gentile wanted to worship what, God the proper way, what did they do? They converted to Judaism. Okay, and so Paul is saying that these things were different. There was another age prior to the age of grace. Then there's the age of grace or the dispensation of grace, a previous dispensation. And then Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Look at he talks about another dispensation, another time period. What is he referred to? Ephesians 1, verse 10. That in the dispensation of the what? The fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth. And so he talks about a third dispensation this passage, when everything comes under Jesus Christ's rule. Okay, everything, creation, creatures, all people, is that happening today? No, it's in the fullness of times. It is a future event, and he uses the future tense. Paul is saying it is another period of time beyond the age of of grace. By the way, there's a dispensation of the fullness of times. If we talk about that, we talk about like the kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. How will we worship in the thousand-year kingdom? We're going to go back to the temple worship, and we're going to bring what? Sacrifices. Okay, and it's going to change. And so in this, con- in this passage, he says there are at least three dispensations where people had different responsibilities and ways of worshiping God. Now, if we're going to define this, we would say, okay, the church age or the age of grace, which we are still living in, what would be prior to the church age? I mean, you can look on the wall, you can see it. But in other ages when the Gentiles and Jews were separated, what age, what time period do you know that is? Okay, under the law, under the law of Moses, okay? And the fullness of time, we would say it's probably kingdom age, okay? That thousand-year kingdom, that's a different dispensation. Oh, by the way, we should add this. Um, When did the law of Moses start? This isn't a trick question. Who did it start with? Okay, so prior to Moses, there had to be other forms, and there were. Okay. There was other forms of dispensations that were preceding that where people could worship and how they worshipped and how they interacted with God. And you can see a chart on the wall that, that is suggested by, by theology. So what you have here is you have to look and say, okay, um, what prophecy is dealing with what age of time? It's very important. Let me see if I can carry it on. Okay, during those different eras of time, there was different responsibilities and different revelation. By the way, each dispensation seems to start with a whole new set of revelatory requirements and a lot of revelation, or I shouldn't say a lot, but specific revelation given as far as what they're supposed to do. And with that, okay, the view sees that there's distinctions between different groups of people at times. The church age is different than... Israel, Israel in the Old Testament. Israel in the Old Testament was the unique body that God was working with. God's unique body today isn't just Israel. Because today, in the era of what we call the dispensation of grace, the Jews and Gentiles are, the believing, Jews and Gentiles are one body. Okay, so we have to look and say, when he's making promises prophetic promises is he talking to the nation of Israel were they given to the Jews were they given to the church okay because those promises do differ because there was a, the Jews are the favored nation. But today, you know, there's, there's that idea that when we become believers, we're all in the body of Christ. That's different than under the law. And so we have to look and say, interpreting prophecies, we need to consider who are they written to. By the way, this has huge ramifications for the tribulation. When we study the prophecy of the tribulation, who, what period of time, what dispensation does the tribulation fall under? Well, and, when we, and I'm going to just jump way ahead and we'll prove this as we go through. The, the prophecy of Daniel is under the law because it's the 70th week of, the, of Daniel's revelation. And so when we go back, when we study those last seven years of tribulation, it's not about the church. It's about what group of people? The Jews. Who is he trying to rescue at that point? The Jews. Who is Antichrist trying to destroy? The Jews. Two thirds of what nation are destroyed by the end of the Battle of Armageddon? The Jewish people. And who does Jesus Christ come down to the Mount of Olives and rescue according to Zechariah 13 and 14? The Jewish people. So that last seven years, its focus is more upon the Jewish nation. Where do all the big wars take place like Armageddon? Near what nation? Israel. Okay, it's a time period that is basically the wrap-up of the Old Testament. In fact, who does what? What, what is built? I shouldn't say built. What is uh, what? What does what um, does Antichrist invade and take over, claiming he's God? The temple. We're back to a Jewish worship system. Who does he send to be the, some of the preachers? Not the, just the 144,000, but Two prophets, okay? And it's considered to be Moses and Elijah. Those are the guys that come back and they do it. It's a Jewish time period, and it's, it's all focused on the Jews. So where's the church at the time of the tribulation? We're gone. Why? Because it's a Jewish time period. If you understand the prophecies and put it all together. And again, we'll back that up when we get into it a little bit further. Let's, uh, let's make this last statement. Okay, and then let's jump into some specifics. A study of, of future events. When we study, come and start looking at, the, at future events, some people have said to me in the past, I don't like studying future events. It scares me. Okay, well, Jesus talked about certain things that scare us for our benefit. Okay, uh, good thing he told us about hell. And it does scare us. Good thing he told us about Satan. And he does scare me. Okay? But it's for our benefit. There is benefit in studying Old Testament, uh, studying uh, biblical prophecy and future events. In fact, in the book of Revelation, as the book begins, he said, Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things found therein. There's a special. A special blessing according to Revelation 1-3 for your approach and study of the book of Revelation. What are some of the practical benefits of doing a study like this? Let's highlight a few. Godly living... Because in Second Peter he's talking about end times, he's talking about the future, the destruction of the earth. He says, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, and dissolved in fire, not the flood. That's, this is the text we're talking about. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? By knowing that things in this earth are only temporary and what lasts, it challenges us to focus in on what's going to last. It focuses in on godly living. Uh, it provides us comfort. Jesus in his last supper meal he says twice let not your heart be troubled well, actually he says twice um, three times he says you know, uh, peace be with you my peace I leave you he begins and ends it and he says in John 14 talking about heaven let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me and he goes on what comfort can we get out of him talking about heaven any comfort any encouragement Okay, what, what this in First Thessalonians 4, he says, comfort one another with these words. That wraps up a paragraph that's talking about what future event. The rapture. How are we comforted by the rapture? We're taken away. We're we're not going to be living in that end times period. And we're going to be with Christ forever one day. That's comforting. That's encouraging that we're going to be reunited with loved ones. We'll be with Christ. We'll be with him forever. There's comfort. Christian service, well, therefore be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. What is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 all about? What's the main topic of that whole chapter? the resurrection the resurrection and he talks about knowing therefore the terror of the lord we persuade men we'll come back to that in a second okay it provides uh, a study provides growth it provides maturity in our life okay we study doctrine so that we may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works witnessing okay where he says knowing the fear of the lord we persuade men in that text he's talking about the judgment that people will face knowing therefore that there's judgment, we ought to be rescuing people, sharing the word of God. Paul's on Mars Hill, he's preaching, he's talking about judgment upon all people. That the creator is going to judge, that knowing that, that persuaded Paul to be able to preach the word of God. Um, And then we'll say, okay... This is one aspect. We appreciate God even more as we understand he spake and it's going to come to pass. The God we serve is in control. We just appreciate him more and more. Now, let's add a few thoughts. Then let's get into a specific prophecy about his coming again. Okay, additional thoughts. Not everyone will experience the same things in the future. Okay, that's a fact. Okay, not everybody experiences the same afterlife. That's a future event. Some people, when they die, they go to heaven. Some people, when they die, they okay, they go to hell. Okay. Um, some people will be raptured. Some people won't be raptured. Some will live in the tribulation and survive it. Some will not survive the tribulation. Okay. And so, not everything everybody experiences the same thing. So we want to keep that in mind. The key nation in prophecy is not the United States. In fact, what text is the United States mentioned when it comes to in prophecy? It, there is none. There is no text that talks about, it says, the United States. Now, understand, some who deal with prophecy will say, well, it mentions the eagle. That must refer to the United States. Are there any other nations that use the eagle as an emblem? What major nation? Okay. Uh, Old Testament, Old Testament, huge nation. Rome. Rome, and Rome is specifically referred to in prophecy, but not the United States in that regard. So we have to be very, very careful. It's almost, it's, uh, if I, I can say it in a polite sense, it's almost arrogant, arrogant of us to think that we are the centerpiece of history. Okay. God never said that. God did say the centerpiece of history is what nation? It's Israel. It's Israel. So Israel is the key. Although God has chosen not to reveal the exact day or hour of the Son that he comes. We understand that. He has revealed there will be some signs to look for that will give a general idea, strong hints that he is coming. Okay? No man knows the day and the hour. He makes that comment in Matthew and in Mark when he's talking about his second coming to earth. That's not the rapture. He never talks about the rapture in the Gospels. It's never mentioned because Paul refers to it later as a mystery. So when you read those prophetic passages, they're not raptured. Don't get caught up with that. Okay. They're talking about his coming again to rescue the nation of, of Israel and the second coming and dealing with Antichrist in that last seven years. He gives signs, but he says you don't know the exact day and hour. Now, for me, here's what throws me, okay? Um, and we'll talk about this later on. But he gives, he gives days. He says from the signing of the covenant with Antichrist, there is 1,260 days. Then the treaty is broken, and there's another 1,260 days before he comes back. Well, wait a minute. Is there a contradiction in Scripture? He says we can't know the exact day, but he said 1,260 and 1,260 then how do we not know the exact day? We don't know when it starts. We don't know when it starts. To give you the illustration, in the book of Daniel, it talks about from the signing, um, from the decree to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. There shall be, and it, and it starts, that whole prophecy of 490 years or the, uh, the 70 weeks of, uh, of Daniel's prophecy when it's, it says that there's 490 years, okay, that it's going to start. The problem is there's four different potential decrees. We have history and we still can't figure out which one did he start with. So what's that say? There could be a possibility that in the future there could be multiple decree, uh, treaties between Israel and the Western nations. Is that? Do you see that happening in politics today? That there are multiple treaties or agreements and so... He says we don't know the exact hour of the day, okay? But he gives us strong hints. The keystone, okay, just like Pennsylvania is the keystone state that just kind of held them all together, This where its location and its political powers during the Revolutionary War. The keystone st- text of, of prophecy is Daniel chapter 9. To start studying all prophecy and dates and all those things, you've got to understand Daniel chapter 9. It is the, it is the prophetic passage upon which Jesus builds, when he talks about wars and rumors of wars, the book of Revelation builds upon Daniel chapter 9. Now, we need to study it. We're not going to do that today. We're going to study into another area. We're going to study the next major event in prophecy, and it has to do with the return of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's jump into this. Okay. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus coming and dying. Okay. In fact, I've put an insert today that, um, that I thought would be to your benefit, to have in your files, uh, that gives a whole listing. Not on, it's not exhaustive, but it's a number of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he came and did his earthly ministry. And there are some very specific things about dying between the thieves, buried in a borrowed tomb, things that he could not have controlled, except being divine. And so a lot of those things are in there, and they, there's a lot of prophecies given in the Old Testament okay how many of those prophecies about his first coming came true every single one of them every now this is an important thought every one of those came true, through, came true. he also has a lot of prophecies about his coming again uh, his second coming in the Old Testament uh, Jesus talking about I will come again a lot of different details that he gave here's the question I have okay. how do we know those are going to be coming true if you look at the list of prophecies, okay, that Jesus comes back, and if all of the prophecies were 100% true in detail about his first coming, what does that indicate about his, the prophecies in the second coming? They'll be 100% true as well. Okay, if he was able to make all those come to pass, he's able to make all these come to pass. And so that idea of his coming again is, is absolutely essential in Scripture. There's many, many passages talking about Jesus coming again beyond his first coming or where he ascended and rose on high. In fact, 28% of the Old Testament we said was prophecy. We talked about this last week. Of that 28%, one-third are dealing with his second coming in particular. So there's a lot of references to his second coming, referring to coming in glory, coming in power, coming to set up his kingdom. 22 of the 27 New Testament books talk about him coming again. Beyond the, God, the period of the Gospels, okay, that He would come again a second time. So it's a major theme in the New Testament. In fact, fifty some odd times, there's the phrase like, "The Lord is at the coming of the Lord is nigh. Be ready." And they're beyond His present ministry on earth during the Gospels, even he says, the Son of Man shall come in power and glory. References to coming again, that you'd be ready, the hour you don't know, and the epistles, they pick up on that theme, that he's coming again, he's coming again, he's coming again. Jesus talked about it at length, that he's going to ascend, he's going to come again, come again, come again someday in the future. The angels, when he is ascending up into heaven, why do you men stand here and gaze up? Even so shall he come again. The epistles, there's multiple passages, and this is not exhaustive, but multiple references. He's coming again, he's coming again, he's coming back, he's coming again. And so you have this, this conclusion that this coming again was a very popular topic. It was with the ministry of Christ and the apostles, and it was commonly accepted. The apostles don't dispute it they don't refute it they have that, that, that connection with the Lord for revelation and they state it and they adhere to it that it's not a false doctrine he's coming again, he's coming again and so it's a very very important topic that he's coming again, he's coming again provide comfort, he's coming again provide incentive for service, he's coming again therefore share the word of God and it's just on and on and on the question we have is why is he coming back why is he coming back Now, I'm I'm talking in big general terms here. He's coming again. Why is he coming back? Let me show you a few texts that give us explanation. Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians tells us one reason that he's coming back. Okay? And there's multiple reasons, but let's show you the five that are given in Scriptures. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, he talks about Jesus Christ coming again. Watch what he talks in reference to this passage. He's talking... Yeah, and he's referring to those people who are going through troubles and trials and difficulties. And he says in chapter one of uh, verse seven of chapter one in 2nd Thessalonians, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired why is he coming back basic reason one of the the main reasons he's coming again to judge okay it's to render judgment upon the lost. It's very clear. This one of the reasons he's coming back is to render judgment upon the lost. Okay, we're talking coming again. I'm not talking rapture. Uh, I'm not specifically talking, you know, which part of his coming—rapture or second coming. He doesn't refer to and give specifics here. Just he's making comment that one of the reasons he's coming back is to judge the lost. Now go back to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter five. He makes comment in this passage. We'll do a couple different texts here. He says, verse 9, For God hath not appointed us, who are believers, to wrath, but to obtain salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's back up a little bit. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 10. Where he says, we wait for his, for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And then in Revelation chapter 3, he talks about deliverance as well. And so another reason that he's coming back, he's coming back, and that's going to be the reason that we would give this way, is to rescue living believers from the wrath to come. Okay, He's coming to bring judgment. He's coming to rescue believers from wrath to come. We're not saying these are simultaneous But this is all his return has to do with this. In John chapter 5, in John chapter 6, he talks about the resurrection. And if you look up the text, he's talking about how he's going to come again, and he's going to resurrect people, and some unto life, and some unto death. Let me see if I can just grab the one here in Revelation 6, verse 39, where he talks about, this is the will of the Father which has sent me that all should that he hath he hath given me should I lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me that every one which sees the son believes on him may have everlasting life I will raise him up at the last day. And so one of the reasons he's coming back is to resurrect all the believers from the grave. That's part of his return, his coming again, is to resurrect people. Romans chapter 11, he's coming back, and this has to do with the nation of Israel. He's coming to redeem Israel from destruction, to save the remnant of Israel. And then in Romans chapter 8, he talks about creation groaning because of the sin nature. He's coming back. Part of it is to rescue creation from the destruction of sin. Those are, those are the basic five reasons given in Scripture why he's coming again. Okay. Now, do, does this all happen simultaneously? He never said that in any of those texts. He just says he's coming again. These are the reasons. Now what we have to wade through is when he comes to rescue living believers, is that at the same time that he comes to judge the lost? It is at the same time that deceased Christians rescued? From, is it the same time that Israel is rescued? Is it the same time creation is regenerated? Okay, now we have, a, we have that dilemma is what occurs in what order? And so we start looking and saying, okay, when is he coming back? And this poses a, more of a difficult for us theologically. Because as we start studying these passages to try to put in the chronology of when is he coming back, he gives us details about his coming back. And as we compare the details of his coming back from some passages to another set of passages, it's interesting that as we compare and look at some of the details or specifics given and make comparisons, there's lots of contradictions. Or you have to start spiritualizing some of this and saying, okay, maybe it isn't literal coming back. Or you have to come to this conclusion. There's two phases of his future coming. There's two phases of it. Now you're going to have to decide, but let me let me show you what I mean by this, okay? You can go in and you can start studying Scripture and it says in some texts he's coming to the earth. But in some texts it says he's coming to the clouds. Which one is it? Okay, do you see what I'm saying? Okay, you have to say, well, we got a contradiction or it's really not the clouds. The clouds are referring to fog upon planet Earth. And it's just going to be a foggy day when he returns. And you start explaining away some of the text, or you come to the conclusion, it's both. He comes to the Earth, he comes to the clouds, and his coming is basically in two parts. Let me give you another example. He stays on the Earth after he comes, He returns to heaven. Which one is it? Okay. Uh, He comes, after he comes, he judges the lost. After he comes, he judges believers. Which one is it? Okay. He presents himself as a king... And then there's passages that the talk, he presents himself as the groom taking his bride to himself, and, you know, it's their wedding day. Or is it his coronation day? Which one is it? Or you have this: He rescues the nation of Israel, very clearly, coming back to rescue the Jews. He comes back to rescue his bride, the church. Which one is it? Or is it both? Or is there a contradiction? Or do we spiritualize and say, well, actually the bride and Israel are all the same. Uh, he descends from heaven with his angels and saints. We just read that in Second Thessalonians. But Revelations talks about the saints being taken away. Um, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the saints... Are are not with him when he comes back. He comes by himself. And First Thessalonians four would be the better passage. He comes to by himself and meets the the saints in the air. Which one is it? Okay. Let's go a little bit further. His focus is on the Jews. His focus is on the bride. His coming is gradual and seen by everyone. Well, wait a minute. Second Thessalonians, uh, Second Corinthians says that in a moment in the the twinkling of an eye okay it's it's not the blinking it's the glistening of the eye it's the it, it's in an atomus the smallest unit that they knew at that time of time okay it's very sudden coming it's not gradual it's he's come he's gone or he's going to come and everybody's going to see there are many signs there are no signs which one is it okay it's spoken of throughout the Old Testament. He's coming in power and great glory. First Thessalonians 4 says this is something never revealed before. He's coming to the clouds and taking away his saints, and it's brand new. Okay, which one is it? Okay, the conclusion you have to have, if you're going to be a literalist, is everything that I've given you in the first column is talking about his physical return to planet Earth at the Mount of Olives. It's that which is the majority of the Old Testament. It's that which Jesus talked about during the Gospels. He is coming at the end of the tribulation period. And he very clearly gives all that that information, that at the end of the worst of times, and the worst of days, you're going to hear the wars and the rumors of wars. And after all those things, then shall the Son of Man come in power and great glory. The first column is talking about a coming, not to planet Earth, but to the clouds, to take away the saints, take them to heaven to judge them, take away his bride, and that is what we refer to as the term the rapture. So his second coming is going to be in two phases. One's going to come to the clouds that he's coming again, and one is to the planet earth. Now you have the challenge of saying, okay, which one is he talking about in which text? And as we put it all together, it'll make a lot more sense as we go through it. Now, There's a there's a lot of different views that approach this whole thing, and I I want to take a few moments just to throw this out. What I'm talking about from a dispensational point of view, it makes perfect sense because he comes in two phases. Because um, we have a different we're 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 a different entity than Israel. Israel is the chosen nation. We're the bride. We're not the same. We're distinct. Okay, and as a result of that, the time, as I already mentioned, the tribulation period is not for the saints, it is for the nation of Israel. It's for redeeming people under the Old Testament system. We're not under that Old Testament system. And so we have no business in that 70th week of Daniel, and other than we're taken to heaven or be with the Lord, we bypass the wrath of the Lord, which is talked about in Revelation chapter 6. And so we're not in that wrath to come. Uh, aspect that literally in the according to Revelation 6 has come and it continues to come. And so we're, we're taken away because it's not our age. It's not our dispensation. We're out of there. But there's a variety of different points of views that come and you're going to sit down and you're going to read and if you go on the internet you're going to run into some of these. You're going to run into people that when they start talking about the second coming of Christ you've got to understand where they're coming from. Um, let me see if I can do it this way. Does everybody who uses the term born again mean the exact same thing? No. What do some people mean when they say you've got to get born again? How does that happen for some people? One Go ahead. Yeah. Every day? Every day, oh, I spread my wings and grow. Okay. okay. And some believe that, some talk about that, that there's changes. Some would get born again by baptism. Okay, uh, good works, some by um, making some new new uh, resolutions in your life. Okay, so when we talk to somebody and they're using the term born again, what do you want to do? You, what's that? Yeah, they gotta, you got to make sure you're on the same terminology. What do you mean by being born again? Okay, you got to start there. Qualify, explain what you mean. When we talk about theology and the coming of Christ, what do they mean by that? Here's what some people mean. When they talk about the coming of Jesus, there are those who in theology, they would call it the spiritual theory. And they talk about the coming of Christ as if it is a spiritual coming. Jesus came again. It was future to him when he was speaking at the Last Supper. In the Last Supper, what did he say? I shall send you another... Comforter, okay. And the word he uses for another is one just like me, same thing but different. And so he says, I want to send you another comforter. He was referring to who? Holy Spirit, okay. Some say that was his coming. He was talking about coming again in the, in the sense of being the Holy Spirit that comes into your life. So when you talk about the coming of Jesus, it's that you were the Holy Spirit came. Okay, and so there is no future coming beyond the book of Acts. He came in the form of the spirit. How would you respond to that? Is there any refutation to that? Okay, I I, I, left, you, I left something dangling out there. They say that his coming was in the first chapter of the book of Acts. okay the second chapter of the book of, first, first second chapter of the book of Acts. That was his coming. Is there any reference to him coming again after that in the epistles? Hello? Okay, okay. So if that is true, if this idea that his coming was spiritual, then why are there so many references still to he's coming again, he's coming again, he's coming again? In the epistles, in the preaching in the book of Acts, did the apostles not get it when they say he's coming again? after the book of, or after Pentecost took place. So you look at it and say, theologically, it's just, it's very shallow. It just doesn't make any sense because you're not taking into account all the prophecies of he's coming again throughout the rest of the book of Acts and beyond. Here's what some say. They say it's a conversion theory. The conversion theory is that Jesus comes into your heart. So when he says, I'm coming again, he's talking about, I will enter into your body and I will come to you personally. And so then again, we would say, well, if that's the case, why do all these saved writers still talk about him coming again, coming again, coming again, if it has to do with being born again? They were already born again. Makes no sense. Let's, let's add this. Okay, now we're getting into what's called some more of the theology. There are a lot of books. There's a lot of internet that talks about post-millennial theory. This talks about the possibility of Jesus coming again, but when does he come? Yeah, post means after. What's millennial referring to? Okay, the kingdom, the kingdom age. So Jesus will come again, but it's not soon. He's not coming soon. He will come again at the end of the millennial age after we have made the earth ready for him. In other words, to make the the earth ready, we have to get rid of all sin. Uh, What else? Let's be practical about it. what, What do we have to eradicate from the human race? Social ills like crime, poverty, Discrimination, wars, nations, um, poverty, hunger, lack of education. We got to get it ready. Otherwise, Jesus isn't going to rule. He isn't going to pick up a. He isn't going to pick up a broken thing. He wants it all fixed before he gets here. Okay, what type of gospel does this lend towards? the social gospel, that idea that we have got to stamp out everything, okay, and get rid of all, and make, and by the way, we have to get the planet earth ready, okay, so what do we have to take care of planet earth-wise? Pollution, global warming, okay, all these things play in. It comes from a theological point of view, The theology is we've got to get the world ready to be a bigger, better place so that Jesus Jesus will come again. And no one knows when that end of that age is going to be because it doesn't mean a literal thousand years. It just means two, you know, whatever. Okay, so you have all that, and you and I would say, okay, if this is true, then why does the Bible say that in the latter days men will wax worse and worse. Why does it say the world's going to get to be a worse place? Because the Bible is true and this theology is wrong. Okay, let me add a, this and then we'll wrap, we'll wrap up these two. Amillennial is basically there is no millennium. It's similar in the sense that we're just going to one day enter into an eternal state of perfection and everything will be great. There is no kingdom. There's no tribulation. There's no rapture. And everything is just spiritual. And all we do, we're dealing with right now is, oh, is we're not necessarily dealing with Satan. There's just good versus evil. And we just need to get rid of all the evil. Okay. And it spiritualizes everything. Okay, refutation. Jesus talked about uh, kingdom. Premillennial is the idea that Jesus is coming back before the thousand-year kingdom because we don't have the ability to fix up planet Earth. Okay, He alone can bring in universal peace, prosperity. He alone can correct social ills. He alone can take care of uh, war, rumors of wars. He alone can do all that. So that's premillennial. Which one are you? Do you believe Jesus alone can fix the ills and ailments? Absolutely, absolutely. We're going to talk about that Jesus a little bit and how he ministers to us, so let's get ready for worship.